Welcome back to the PeaceWorks podcast, everyone. On today's episode, I want to return to a recent discussion we had uh, with my friend Leslie Vernick. If you recall, a few episodes ago, I shared with you just a, a clip from a training that Leslie and I did together a few years ago. And uh, the, the response was really overwhelming. Many of you wanted a part two. And so I'm going to accommodate that, kind of a Christmas present to our listeners who really wanted to hear more from Leslie and myself together. So today's going to be a part two, more of that particular training. Uh, if you'd like to see the entire training or uh, have that, it's actually in PeaceWorks University. You're getting a small portion of what was a nine-hour uh, church-wide training that we conducted. And all of that material, all nine hours, are in PeaceWorks University. Uh, when the doors open back up in the spring, or at whatever time you're listening to this, run over to chrismoles.org and see if the doors are open. But PeaceWorks University um, accepts new students periodically. And when we do, that entire training, along with hundreds of other materials, are available to our members. So again, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast, and I hope you enjoy uh, this clip from that training that I conducted a few years ago with my dear friend, Leslie Vernick. Welcome to the PeaceWorks podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. We're thinking about the, the, the putting on the victim hat. I was working with a guy one time who his buzzword was, you got to understand. Chris, you got to understand. And then it was excuse that you got to understand I had worked 60 hours that week. You got to understand I was coming down. I was struggling with addiction at the time. You got to understand that she wouldn't leave me alone. And I finally looked back and said, well, you've got to understand that God did not design you or, or give you this uh, marriage and this wife for you to dominate. Uh, so when you're working with destructive people, be prepared for what I call the Marshall Tucker Band theology. Nobody. Okay. Can't you see? Oh, can't you see what that woman's been nobody doing to me? Nobody? So there's a lot of blame shifting that's going to go on. Hey, statistics. We're going to fly through some of these. This is the number one health problem for women around the world today. Number one health problem. This has been categorized, domestic abuse has been categorized as an epidemic. Every nine seconds, this occurs. Leading cause of injury to women between the ages of 15 and 44. More than car accidents, muggings, rape combined. Texas. Nobody? Yeehaw. Like I thought you, Texas. All right. 132 domestic homicides in 2014. Your um, DV Review Board does a great job. I got some of their stuff uh, at my office. I'm on our domestic homicide review board in West Virginia. Uh, 32 of those, or 39 of those, excuse me, were in the Dallas area. Uh, we'll often see headlines like this. I'll just fly through these, and unfortunately, the headlines will begin with this word, pastor. 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 We're not immune in the church. 
And many of us in ministry living in isolation often, uh, many of this is hidden. And when you consider uh, how our jobs are tied to our abilities to lead our families, there's a lot of secrecy. So 4 million will experience this. 3.3 million children witness violence towards their mothers. And you'll see, hopefully, I'm going to give you some stuff before we close out this morning uh, that'll let you know that Children who witness violence, domestic violence, often have the same symptomology as children who experience violence. There's very little difference. It's one of the most amazing things sociologically how uh, violence impacts children even if they're not the target. So when we talk about victims of domestic violence, we're not just talking about the target, but children who are in the home are also victims. Young man who witnesses violence as a child is four times more likely. I don't think it's genetic. I think it is learned behavior. You can unlearn it. If you can learn it, you can unlearn it. Praise the Lord, right? So uh, here's the deal, though. My dad used to say, the well-worn path will get you home, but it's not the only way. Just because a path in the woods is worn really well doesn't mean you have to take that one. But for many young men, it's the only path they've seen. It's normalized behavior. We need to offer them alternatives. All right, this one, you ready? This one got me choked up when I first saw it. 63% of young men between the ages of 11 and 20 who are serving time for murder have killed their mother's abuser. We have had three deaths um, directly related to our group since I started 10 years ago. We had one victim take her own life, um, and that was really a sad situation. We had one young man who had completed the program who later got in an altercation with his brother and was stabbed to death. And then we had one man who was terminated from our program who attempted to murder his wife and she shot him. Um, This is a real um, sticky situation and people do lose their lives over it. And it's not just statistics, it's real people that I've talked to that I've shook their hand that I've sat down with them. This is a a deadly um, situation that we're dealing with. You heard earlier the one in four Christian women, no discernible difference between the church and the culture. If you want to know more about that, you can check out the RAVE Project, uh, the RAVE Project, Religion and Violence Education. 40% of girls between 14 and 17 know someone in their age group who's been hit or beaten by their boyfriend. Teen dating violence is on the rise. There's also a new trend called breakup violence. Have you heard this? It is amazing. We're coming across more and more breakup violence. Young ladies in particular are afraid to break up with their boyfriend because relationships have changed. When I was a teenager, I went on dates with girls. Not anymore. I know 12, 13-year-old kids that are dating. It's exclusive and it's very possessive. Youth leaders, take note. We need to talk about safe dating in our churches. One in three teenage girls has feared for her safety in a dating relationship. Okay? All right. What's the Bible got to say about this? A lot. I'm glad you asked. So if you uh, come visit me in my office, my office is a shed in my backyard. True story. I call it the world headquarters of Chris Moles Ministries. And uh, also true. And there is a uh, picture of my family on my desk. And if you were to walk into my shed, I mean the headquarters, and you were to take that picture and spit on it and rip it up, you'd probably have to answer to me. I'm not a violent guy. I told the guys last night I'm more Anabaptist, so I'm pacifistic. 
but that might push me over the edge, right? I also told them I would be Anabaptist, but I can't grow a beard. So I'm seeing it. It's all patchy and weird. Well, is it, what is so valuable about that picture is not the paper it's printed on, right? It's not the process. It's not where I picked it up. It's not the frame that it's in. It's the image that it represents. And domestic violence, domestic abuse is assault on the very image of God because we are special. And I know if you, everybody's special, then nobody's special. But listen, there's something special about humans. God created us in his image and likeness. We are unique. Uh, house plants do not sit around and have meetings about domestic violence. They don't have uh, meetings about philosophy. Golden retrievers don't sit around saying, I wonder why Fred traces cars. No, they don't. We do. We have these unique qualities because we're made in the image of God. So humanity is sacred space. And when we violate someone in this way, we violate the very image of God. That's in your notes. You can see all of that. That also happens relationally. God relates to himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he created us for relationships. And when we have this one-way street relationship, we mock the, um, the pattern, the community that God called us to. It uh, undermines God's purpose. We are created for a reason. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 is a scripture I give most often, uh, first and often, uh, that we're made for God's pleasure. We make it our goal whether we're dead or alive to please God. So I will often come back to a man who's destructive when he's, uh, giving me the excuse, the excuse, the excuse with this response. Okay, explain to me the, the ways in which this is bringing glory to God. How is this behavior an act of worship? Abuse opposes the will of God. There's clear directions for those of us who are husbands. Uh, you can look those up. You've probably heard those. I use uh, Colossians 3.19 a lot. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. It's a pretty clear um, directive. And for many of us, we operate in uh, harshness or sandpaper. Heart of God, abuse violates the heart of God. I believe that God is a God of peace. His primary um, MO is peace. Has he been long-suffering with us? Oh, my goodness. He's been very patient with us. It doesn't negate his justice, but it shows his love. Praise God he's been patient with us, right? Did Jesus die for violent people? Sure did. Ever heard of Barabbas? <laughs> yeah, the guy was pretty, he was a terrorist, right? And Jesus hung on a cross designed for him. Uh, John Henderson, great quote, none of us can escape the brokenness of our world. We are sinful, hurting people in a universe groaning under the curse of sin. The reality of physical and sexual abuse in the world provides a blatant and painful proof of this brokenness. What are we suggesting? Deep theology here. Abuse is sin. It's missing the mark. It's falling short. It's bad. Several years ago, I was doing a pastor's conference, and I called one of my friends who's an advocate and former shelter worker, and at this time, she was in charge of all the advocates for our state, and she attends our church, and I called her up, and I said, hey, I told her what I was doing. I said, if you were in my shoes, what would you tell these pastors? She thought for like three seconds. I said, Chris, could you just remind them that abuse is sin? She told me the story of when she worked at the shelter, the day they dreaded the most was Sunday because the church bus would roll up to the shelter and they knew in their heart if a lady got on that church bus, she wasn't coming back because the church would convince her to reconcile. She wouldn't receive the services that she needed. 
And it was amazing. It's amazing how much the culture and this work is at odds with Christians. They don't like us very well sometimes. And they have good reason in some instances. So it's up to us, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, it's up to us to start being people of peace to bridge some of that gap. Because I think we have something special to offer in the gospel. Uh, but we need to do it effectively. It's Romans 12. Um, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. It's good to protect yourself from violent people. It really is. We have this doormat mentality that uh, I should be bowled over, but there are avenues, scripturally, biblically, community, in which resistance is good. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, Jesus is talking about uh, proper ways to resist oppression that highlight the offender's offense without us responding in kind, right? I don't have to repay evil for evil, but I'm not going to let you remain unaware of your evil. And the world's going to know whether you're slapping me on the wrong side of the face or whether you're leaving the courtroom naked or whether we're walking down the road when it's illegal. It's good to expose the deeds done in darkness. It's good to speak the truth in love. It's good to stop someone from sinning against you when possible. There I go. You see that? It's good. I was an athlete. Thank you. Um, it's good for someone to experience the consequences of his or her behavior. Consequences are not a bad thing. Consequences are a God thing. You remember in the book of Numbers, right? The people, they were disobedient. They didn't follow God's design and God wouldn't let them in the promised land. You remember? And they had to wonder, right? But he still forgave them, didn't he? He forgave them before the wondering began. He loved them and forgave but they still had consequences. It's a good thing. It's good to see the fruit of repentance before reconciling. We don't rush reconciliation. We engage reconciliation. The best way to reconcile is when there's real repentance. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's good to be gracious to your enemy. I think that's one of the most unique things about Christianity, guys, is enemy love. Is there anything more difficult? But is there anything more Christ-like? who at the end of himself says, Father, forgive them. Are you kidding me? It's good to be gracious to your enemy. We are going to, yeah, good. So I was told via text, we've been texting back and forth, that we can go till a quarter till because we're waiting on the food to get here. So Leslie, do you want to go ahead and cover some of this stuff? So, you know, I think it's really helpful that when we're talking about what are destructive behaviors, that we get really clear on what a healthy relationship looks like, because I don't think we've been taught really well, at least when I was in uh, high school and college dating, was if he's a Christian, he's good to go, right? Yeah. All the criteria needed to look for is to make sure he said he loved the Lord. And if he said he loved the Lord, then decide whether you like the man or not. But you didn't really have to look at some red flags or qualities of a relationship or whether this was a good fit. So just like bankers study counterfeit money and then they study real money to look at making sure that they understand what looks counterfeit more obvious, or doctors study healthy bodies and healthy hearts and healthy mm -hmm. livers so that when an unhealthy one shows up in the x-ray or CAT scan, it becomes more obvious. I think it's really helpful for us as people helpers to know what healthy relationships look like so that when something happens in our midst that is off 
it's much more apparent because some of us grew up in some pretty unhealthy homes and so it may just look normal to us when it really is unhealthy. So I want to talk about what a loving relationship looks like. And first of all, a loving marriage is a healthy or a loving partnership, mm -hmm. right? It's not a slave, master, child, father, or child, mother relationship. I mean, anybody who sees a woman treat her husband like a child, it's, it's pretty shaming, right? But in the same way, when a husband treats his wife like a child, it's also shaming. There is conflict in every healthy relationship, but conflict is about solving a problem, not attacking a person. And in a healthy relationship, of course, there's sin and suffering, but damages are regularly addressed and repaired through confession, restitution, and change. So let's look at three ingredients that are necessary for all healthy relationships. And the first one is mutuality. Mutuality. And I talk about five degrees of mutual, not degrees, but five characteristics of mutuality, which is mutual caring, mutual honesty, mutual respect, mutual responsibility for the care and maintenance of the relationship, and mutual repentance. I was speaking at Liberty University last year on healthy dating relationships and just healthy relationships between singles. And, and so this young guy came up to me. He was a junior in his dorm, and he was really a Christ follower. And he, he said, I got this new roommate, and you know, I just don't know what to make of him. He said, I've been trying to be Christ-like. You know, God calls me to not think of my own interests and to be a servant and not to be selfish and put others' needs ahead. All the things that we know about you know, giving and loving and serving and all of that sacrificing. And he goes, and so you know, the guy didn't come with a car and I've got a car on campus, so I drive him to the drugstore, I took him to the doctor. He never offers to pay for me my gas. He says, you know, he was sick the other day in the dorm and I brought him his meal and I gave him some notes to copy from the class he missed and he never said thank you. You know, he leaves his laundry and his underwear all over the floor and I pick it up and I take it in with my laundry and I do his laundry for him and he never does my laundry. He never does a thing for me. He never says thank you. He never shows care. You know, I was sick the other day. He never asked how I was. He never offered to bring me a sandwich. He goes, this sacrificial stuff is getting pretty old. And so what's wrong with their relationship? Because it looks like he's doing everything right, according to biblical principles. Right. But what's wrong about it is they don't have a relationship. What they have is a one-sided ministry, right? And he's ministering to someone who's taking. He's the giver. This person's the taker. And after a while, the more this person takes without being reciprocal and being giving back, the more and more the relationship is becoming lopsided yeah. and the relationship itself is deteriorating. And so when you're in ministry with someone, go for it. Jesus was in lots of ministry with people. He gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and there wasn't anything that came back to him, not even a thank you from lots of people. But when he was in relationship with people, like with Mary and Martha and, and Peter and John, he got back. There was some mutuality there. And so you can't have a marriage or a healthy marriage without mutuality. And if one person is the giver and the other is the taker, and then when they come to us and they say, I'm tired of being the giver, and we say, well, honey, God calls you to be a giver. He calls you to be loving and sacrificial. What we're actually doing is we're enabling the other person's selfishness to get bigger and bigger and bigger, which isn't good for him or her or them. So mutuality is an important part of a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship. 
The second, oh, let me just read this quote by Tim Keller. He says, the Christian teaching on marriage does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Let me just go back to mutuality for one thing, because I think that the Apostle Paul really tried to emphasize this whole idea about the mutuality in marriage. Um, when he talked about the husband had certain responsibilities to the wife and the wife had certain responsibilities to the husband. But one place where he completely blew the whole culture out of the water with respect to mutuality in marriage was the whole passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Right. Now, we typically think of this passage as your body is not your own and you owe your spouse conjugal duties. And so it's often used against women in abusive marriages, and we'll talk about that this afternoon. Hey, you know, you don't have a choice. You have to have sex with your husband because God says you do. Your body's not your own, so if he wants it, it's his body. But every woman in that culture that Paul was writing to, the hierarchical culture where women had very few rights and were treated more like property, every woman in that culture already knew her conjugal duties. She knew where she stood. The most amazing thing about that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul is saying to the husbands, likewise, you too. You too, you have the same rules that apply to marriage. You don't get special treatment here. You have these things and she has these things, likewise. And so it was astounding to the men that they were given the same status as the women. Your body isn't your own either. Yeah. Your body isn't your own either. It's not like you get to take and she has to give. It goes both ways. Yeah. And so mutuality is a very important part of a healthy relationship. The second ingredient that's really important is reciprocity. And when I talk about reciprocity, I talk about shared power and shared responsibility. You see, often in a destructive marriage, you have a lack of shared power. One person wants all the power, mm -hmm. right? And they often give the other person the whole responsibility. Right. It's your fault that our relationship is deteriorating. You know, especially if she starts putting boundaries or consequences. Hey, I can't believe you're doing this to us. I can't believe you're breaking up our home. Now, nothing that he's done, of course. But now that she's saying, I've had enough and I'm not going to do this, it's your responsibility to fix this. It's your responsibility to put this back together. It's your responsibility to figure out what to do. And often when people helpers interact with marriages, they often give the woman, especially when the husband is more resistant, that responsibility. Somehow you've got to carry the burden of this marriage by yourself. But let's talk about more, a, a concrete example. So um, I'll just call them Bill and Mary. Um, Mary worked for full-time, Bill worked full-time. And if as a couple they had decided that they were going to both deposit their paychecks into their mutual savings account or even separate savings account, however they arranged it together, and that each of them were going to get a certain amount of money and they would show their receipts, like some couples do, you know, if you're a good accountant and you'd like to do all that some couples do that and they do that just fine because they're reciprocal both of them do that but in this marriage Mary worked full-time she was required to deposit her full paycheck into the joint account Bill worked full-time he only deposited an equal amount that Mary did although she made far less money than he did and the rest of his money she didn't know where it was she had to account for every single penny she spent giving her husband all her receipts. And he would question them, like, why did you need to buy this? Why did you do this? But he could buy whatever he wanted because he had all this extra money and he didn't have to account for it at all. That relationship is unbalanced, unhealthy. The rules that apply to her don't apply to him. I can yell at you, you can't yell at me. I can call you names, you better not call me names. I can be disrespectful to you, you're not allowed to do that. I can spend money how I want to spend money, you can't. I can be late and not tell you where I am, you're not allowed to do that. 
When we see those kind of actions going on in a marriage, it's unhealthy and destructive, lack of reciprocity. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about churches. And this is really cool because Paul is saying, I don't want you to sacrifice and let someone else just be enabled. Here's what he says. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance might supply your need, that there may be fairness. He's talking about reciprocity in churches giving to one another. It's not that one church, you give and give and give and give, and this church you get to and you get and get and get, you don't have to give anything back. Paul's talking about you give and you give back. You give and you give back, and that's a healthy relationship. 